This episode is brought to you by Certified Piedmontese Beef. Listen up, foodies. Make your next meal even better with real Nebraska beef. They have healthy, tender, delicious Italian heritage beef, grass-fed and sustainably raised on lush pastures in the Midwest. You can even create your own personally curated meat box that's shipped right to your door. To get two free steaks with any purchase over $50, use the code FREEBEEF at checkout. Learn more and shop exclusively at cpbeef.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Bear. The hit series returns with Jeremy Allen White in the Golden Globe-winning role of Carmi. He and the team will transform their family sandwich shop into a next-level spot, all while being forced to come together in new ways as they confront their past and reckon with who they want to be in the future. FX is the bear. All episodes now streaming only on Hulu. Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. Each week I'll be talking to some incredible guests and I hope by hearing each episode they will offer you a valuable source of inspiration and insight. From incredible life stories to a variety of important subjects all to help you with your quest to change your relationship with alcohol. All of my guests are at different points in their journeys and each of them have powerful and uplifting stories and information to share. I hope you enjoy the show. Don't forget to subscribe and, of course, leave a review. My guest today on One for the Road is Jenna Hewitt. I've known Jenna for over two years now since she approached me for help with her drinking. Jenna was a thriving, successful businesswoman and mum of two beautiful children, but behind closed doors and hiding behind the mummy wine culture, she started to feel that alcohol was starting to impact her life and relationship with herself. Speaking from the heart, Jenna's story will resonate with so many people struggling in the grey area when it comes to their own drinking. Please don't forget to listen to the short ads at the beginning. It's really important because I can then continue to produce this much valued content. Also, don't forget to subscribe and hit the follow button. So welcome Jenna to my podcast, One for the Road. It's so lovely having you on today. We're actually good friends uh, and we met because you approached me over two years ago to discuss your relationship with drinking. How are you today? I'm very well. I'm very well, Dave. How are Good. you? I'm fine. Um, uh, apparently, last time we spoke, you thought I looked orange and I look less <laughs> orange today, so that's Andy. I uh, was going to say, you look a bit less orange today. Yeah, thought, yeah. Well, was... I I did come back for holiday probably a couple of days just before we saw each other, so... Um, anyway, yeah, as I say, we, we've known each other for a good couple of years now. Um, and you booked a discovery call with me two and a half years ago. And um, it was fascinating you um, having a discussion with me because you are a typical grey area drinker. You got yourselves in all sorts of problems with it. But I, as I like to do on my show, I like to wind it back. So mm-hmm. do you want to take it from where you first started drinking and realised that actually you began to have a problem with drinking? Well, you know me very well now, Dave, and you know that I am a very much an all or nothing person when it comes to stuff in life generally. And I 
I'm from that era, the kind of 90s, noughties era of binge drinking, really. And my drinking started like that. I think it was quite typical of a lot of people my age. I'm 42, nearly. And it was, you know, through my teens, late teens, like 16, 17, 18, it was at the weekends, going to nightclubs and drinking too much and feeling rubbish the next day. Um, and then throughout my, throughout my kind of twenties, when I was employed and, and working, um, again, I was work hard, play hard. So I never drank during the week or very, very rarely if there was an event or something, but I didn't drink at home. Um, it was at the weekends and it was boom or bust. And then I'd go to work on Monday feeling a bit groggy, but in your twenties, you can handle it. And I don't look back on those years and think at all that I had a problem or an issue. I don't regret any of those years. I had great fun, <laughs> like brilliant fun. Um, uh, but the things started shifting and changing after I had kids. So that was a big disruption to, to well, disruption sounds like a terrible thing to say about your kids but you know it disrupts your life and your routines and your rhythms um and it's hard like it you know it is hard um having kids and I had two under two and I think with that kind of change in schedule change in just priority you know there's no backstop when you have kids there's no off switch my drinking shifted and it changed and it became not at all about going out and drinking associated with mates and having fun. It was much more a my time at home. And that shift, I think, is, is where things started to unravel. I should say, actually, before this, I, going back to my twenties, there were times in my late twenties where I had a niggle because I'd often find that the party would end for most people and I'd find myself sort of carrying on on a Sunday with the hair of the dog. And there would be this kind of back of the head, just a little voice. And I'd quickly sweep it to one side and think, nah, it's fine, fine. And that, that niggly voice was kind of there on and off, but it, but the niggly voice really came towards my mid thirties when I had two children under two and I was using wine as a coping mechanism, as a switch off, as a reward. And I didn't have the structure to my life in terms of having to think with a really, really clear head for work. And that's when it all sort of, it caught up with me is probably the best way to, yeah, the best way for me to describe what happened. It caught up with me. So you use it as a coping strategy. Because I recently recorded a podcast with Jamie Holiday, and we talked about the decades of uh, women of a certain age in their 40s and 50s had gone through, i.e. the eras of the Ladette culture, Zoe Ball, Kate Moss, that, that era, that it was cool um, to drink and get a drink equally the same as men. And then there was the era of the 90s where Sex in the City came out, and it was glamorous wasn't it like everyone was drinking and 
all of Tell that. Tell culture. Well, hurrah for gin. You know, it really, really glamorised drinking. And then, as we discussed as well about the smoking ban that um, changed things in pubs where mummies used to go in with their newborns or, or toddlers and have Prosecco lunchtime. Uh, and we discussed, you know, I wondered how many women actually went home and then carried on with their day as normal and made the tea and had a cup of tea or carried on with a few glasses on their own, you know. And what what we sort of worked out from it was that um, it was the overwhelming of working mums with the kids. Quite often the husbands worked late and there was so much to do that it was the reward at the end of that. I need something for myself. I need something to calm me down, stop me overthinking, relax. And also, yeah, when, when I worked in the carpets as well, quite often after the school run, um, a few mums would come back and I'd hear the pop of the cork at quarter four and they were still there at half five. And now I'm sober. I wonder again where some of those women were with their relationship with alcohol. Where, where was it after that? And I think for me, the the mummy wine culture, which, you know, we all know what we mean now by mummy wine culture, because it's come to the forefront in the last few years. And I think we're kind of starting to question the mummy wine culture. But I was I was in the heyday of the mummy wine culture and I really used and hid behind the mummy wine culture. I used it as a as a reassurance to myself that it was fine, that everybody was doing that. And there were a lot of people doing it, but you, you hit the nail on the head then when you said how many people went home and had a cup of tea. I don't need the answer to that question, but it wasn't me. And I was one of those mums. We used to have Friday cup of tea with the kids. And I would be the one that would mostly drink the most at the pub. And then when I got home, um, my husband would be home and it would be kids, you know, over to, to daddy and I would carry on drinking. So I 100% um, can see that and can see that that, you know, is it, it has probably impacted a lot of particularly women in of my sort of age and is still impacting them. What changed? I mean, what, what, did you reach a point where you knew you was um, struggling with your relationship with alcohol or did you just, was you in denial for a while? Did you just think, you know, in the morning when you woke up or at three in the morning, did you, did you go through that routine of, oh my God, I've done it again, but by one, two o'clock the next day, you kind of forgave yourself and thought, well, I'll just have one tonight. Did you go through that hamster wheel? Yeah, I went through that hamster wheel day for three years. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and I did have periods in that three years of sober stints that I would do. And I started reading the quick lit. I read every single book I could get my hands on. And I did it all in secret. And I did, you know, do that waking up at three o'clock and Google searching, Anna, am I an alcoholic? And I was definitely trapped in that, that hamster wheel. And for me, I mean, did I hit a rock bottom in terms of you know, did I, a rock bottom in terms of what you think of the rock bottom, you know, was I physically addicted to alcohol? Did I, did something terrible and drastic happen? It, it didn't actually. I, you know, probably to a large part, sometimes through more 
luck than judgment in some instances. But I, I was juggling a lot of balls and I was juggling them well to the outside world. It was inside me. It that was, that was dying really inside. It was my soul that was struggling. It was me that was kind of dragging myself through those days where I had promised myself the day before that I wouldn't drink that day or I'd only drink two glasses or I'd just have one and then I'd switch to water and I'd found myself not doing that. And I would, as you say, wake up at 3 a.m., wake up when I had to get up to take the kids to school and I would just feel that utter dread of, oh, my God. Like I'm here again, and I was so sick and tired of of myself. I can't to think of it now. It felt like I was just losing me, and that sounds really dramatic, but it really felt like that. I was desperate, desperate to to just be able to keep that promise to myself each day, which I just didn't seem to be able to do. And every time. I started on a sober stint, there would always be some reason or something would happen and I'd end up back at square one. And every time I ended back up at square one, it felt worse than the time that I'd ended back up at square one before. And it just felt like the biggest un-merry-go-round that you can imagine. And I desperately wanted to get off it, but I was really scared because I, you know, I used alcohol and it, alcohol had been part of my identity for so many years. You know, I was known as, you know, the, the one that would go out and the, the good time girl, I guess. So I was scared about what that meant if I was no longer to drink. And I was scared about the thought of a life without alcohol. Like it really felt like it was giving something up, but also losing part of me. But I think I got to the point where I knew that something had to change. Um, and that is when I contacted you. I found you through Instagram and we had a discovery call. And that was the start. When I say it was the start, <laughs> it was after three years of starting and stopping and starting and stopping. But that was the, the last, that was my final, mm. final, I've got to do this moment did did you ever talk to your friends about it like your very close friends and tell them how you felt or was you too embarrassed not really I think there's a lot of shame and maybe a bit of denial um and maybe a little bit of what will they think of me I had a couple of moments with a couple of friends one of them actually ironically is now kind of coming up to three months sober herself and we we used ran together and I kind of would during these long runs, long training runs that we do together, I I opened up a bit. The blind opened up a bit. And so there were some people that knew little bits. But actually I didn't really open up massively at all, even to my husband. So it was very much my own personal battle, I think. And when you used to wake up at you know, we all know the infamous 3 a.m. Did you lay there and was, did you feel quite desperate at times? Did you, yeah. like, it's interesting what you say about your identity because I look at it personally, um, like I played a role, but I changed roles depending on what company I was in. So 
i.e. if I went in the pub and there was a solicitor, um, I would act a certain way. If there was a builder, I'd act another way. Yeah. Um, and then I would go home and then just block, block myself out completely and then start again the next day. And the thought of a life without alcohol, I, I couldn't comprehend it because I didn't know what that looked like because I was 14 um, when I started drinking. So I wasn't even an adult. And mm. I'd used it all my life, 40 years, as a mechanism to support me. So it's like being in a relationship 40 years and then deciding that I needed to move on and be without that relationship. And I didn't know what that looked like. And that scared the hell out of me. So it was easier to stay in it. Yeah, 100%. And, and we've talked about this before, but the it wasn't, it wasn't, we didn't have a discovery call. And then it was like, oh, brilliant. Okay, I'll book in some sessions with you. And, you know, <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Now I'm sober. It was, um, there was a two week period of time um between that discovery call and me whatsapping you I think I'm ready and that two weeks for me was a time and I was drinking in that two weeks you know I wasn't I wasn't sober in those two weeks but it was a time when I was really going through the motions and really breaking up with alcohol coming to terms with what I was about to do and getting myself in the mental headspace where I was ready to do this but I still don't think I wanted to, like I didn't fully want to, but I had got to a place where actually continuing to do it was way more painful than the thought of going without it. Like I'd got yeah. to that point where I was kind of willing to think, well, if it means that the rest of my life is boring, <laughs> yeah. then then so be it. But at the moment, my life feels chaotic and that chaos is painful. It's a really bad example to my kids. That was another big part of my why. You know, the kids at the time were, well, it was two and a bit years ago. So um, they were six and eight. And I did not want to be that mum. I did not want to be that mum that, that taught them that dealing with life stress and how you dealt with it was to zone out. Mm. And I didn't want to be that mum where you ask, what's mummy's favourite drink? And the answer is wine. I, you know, so, but it, but it took me those two weeks and then I was ready. When I say I was ready, I was as ready as I was ever going to be. And, and that's where it began with, with you. And, you know, I, we are, you know, we, we are very close. We're still really close friends. And I credit you, Dave, with so much. You know, I wouldn't be here where I am without, I think, first and foremost, your belief in me. Because at that time, I didn't believe in myself, really. I didn't have the belief that I could do it. And I had to kind of borrow that belief from someone. And you, you did. You, you know, you did believe in me. And in a, in a jokey kind of bantery way, you, taught me to believe in myself as well mm. and let's face it right when we re thank you for that by the way i'll take that <laughs> um but when we when we reach a state of desperation in a way that is a rock bottom isn't it because we we feel so low our self-esteem is low and we're robbed of who we are and we all talk about a rock bottom like mine in Eastbourne where, you know, I was flailing around on the stones on the beach. But 
really, you know, when we reach a point in our lives that our mental health is really, really struggling, um, our relationship with our kids, um, it, it impacts on your work, your, your daily life, that is a rock bottom in my books. It doesn't have to be this dramatic, big, well, hey, you know, and, and that's what I saw in you. I saw someone who is completely broken in their life with alcohol and, and you're lucky that your husband doesn't drink much, hardly ever. So th- that was handy for you in a way. Um, but it still took a lot for you to break free. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why we talked a lot about mindset, because I think like people come to me and, and they quite often say the same thing. They've read all the quit lit. They've yeah. listened to all the podcasts. They've tried several times and, and slipped. Well, they say failed. I don't like that word because I use it as evidence. You know, we can you take things from that. But we talked about mindset and how to reframe the mind and, and the conversations we have with ourselves. And I think that's what clicked with you, wasn't it? The change of mindset uh, and community introduced you to community of like-minded people that helped. So, how were the first few weeks for you? Did you struggle or did you, did it all kind of click? Cause a lot of people say there's something, there's a piece of the jigsaw missing. Yeah. And I, I empathize or can, can see, you know, that when people come to you and they say, I've read the quick lit, I, you know, because I, I've done all of that as well. And I think, I think the two things that sort of changed for me, um, maybe three, but the first thing was just, I got to a place with it where I was willing to make it a non-negotiable. And what I mean by that was I just knew that this had to be the last time. I knew that it had to be the last time because mentally, physically, I couldn't try and then slip again. Because if I slip back again after this, I felt like, you know, I was really investing this time and to really invest and then to not, not progress just felt like it would be too soul destroying. So I made it a non-negotiable and we've talked about this before, but you know, when, when I was pregnant, I didn't drink and that was because it was a non-negotiable. I don't want to drink when I'm pregnant. And I think a lot of women can, can relate to that analogy. And I think by making, by having that mindset, And by the way, I got to that mindset out of desperation. Like you said, I hit my own personal rock bottom. But by by getting to that mindset, it it really helped strip away that kind of craving cycle, that kind of fantasizing. Maybe I could. What if? Because I cut it off at the knees and just no, I can't do that anymore. I, Mm. you know. Life might be miserable without it. It might, but it it can't be as miserable as, as where I am now. Mm. So I, I made it a non-negotiable. And then I think the other big difference was when I had tried to quit before, I'd gone at it really gung-ho with this kind of real zest and enthusiasm and everything's going to be mo- much better without alcohol. And, you know, we know that life still goes on <laughs> without alcohol. And there are good days and there are bad days and there are damn right crap days. But what I had done before was I had kind of like gone so gung-ho each time that when something didn't go my way, as inevitably something isn't going to go the way, I would throw the baby out with the bathwater and think, well, sod it, I might as well drink. You know, I feel rubbish. 
I things aren't going my way, and I might as once the novelty had worn off, you know, once I'd done the two, you know, the first few weeks, I'd feel brilliant and I'd feel great, and it would be gung ho, and then something would happen, and it could be something with the kids, it could be something with my husband, it could be something totally irrelevant, and I would just think, well, sod it, and I remember reading or thinking I can't remember but I do remember this one kind of phrase which was I've done the experiment of things getting really tough and going back to drinking and I've done that experiment I cannot even begin to think how many times I've done that experiment but the one thing the one experiment that you have not done Jenna (laughs) um, in this situation is just carry on just carry on not drinking. That's the one thing that you've not tried to do. So why don't we just give it a go? Because we know where the other thing ends and we know what going back to drinking does. We don't know what happens if we just carry on through this. And it's hard because you don't know when that period of feeling rubbish is going to end. There's a, there's a undefined time period to, to wade through and it's difficult and you're doing it all raw and without having having any off switch and it's really really hard but I just had this hope that it couldn't be as bad as going back to what I've been previously doing and I think that was the breakthrough for me is the realization that you don't know it all (laughs) by reading the books and it isn't all going to be plain sailing but the one thing that won't ever help is going back to drinking. Alcohol will not make it better. So let's just see what happens if we don't. And I think that was my mindset shift. Yeah. Um this time round. It's interesting what you say about, you know, the old might's all drink thing, right? Um, because you had a I think it was a day sixty four that you felt you couldn't get past. Yeah. And I encourage you to Put that out of your mind because that was in the past. And then one day I said to you, do you know you're on day 72 now? And you hadn't even thought about your day 64. But that that mindset, day 64, you build yourself up to it. And it's almost like a self-sabotage of, do you know what? I can never get past that. It's a bit like an army assault course when you've got that huge big wall and you can't get over it. And and then you tell yourself, I'll never be able to get over it, right? And these are the kind of things that I talk about mindset. It's like treat each and every experience as learning, you know, and we're all moving forward from right here, right now. We're all moving forward. And it's important to know that as human beings, we're incredible, but we just need to believe in ourselves, you know, and that's what you did. You started to believe in yourself when at the beginning you didn't because you had failed in your words, slipped in my words. And you think, do you know what? I just can't do it, but I'm going to try again. And you get up and it's a bit like a boxer, isn't it? In a ring that after a while he just gets counted out because he hasn't got a mustard to get up again. And mindset is so, and mindset and language is what we, tell ourselves as well you know it's how you reframe the conversation and this is why it's important for people listening now when they're in a difficult situation and they feel they can't do it it's to reframe the conversation and and actually don't expect it to be easy which sounds like a really negative thing to say but i think you know expect there to be highs and expect there to be lows 
and just consistently go about your day with one priority. Don't not drink. Yeah, don't have too many priorities. You mm. know, the whole oh, I'm you know I'm doing it to lose. You know, if I do it, I'll lose weight, or I'll do you know I'll get just push all of that to one side. You know, it doesn't matter. The one thing that you've got to do, and it is, it is consistency, and it's just showing up, and it's mm. it's it's making that reason why you're doing it so strong that even when you feel like the world is against you, you won't go back to that crutch. Yeah, and, and I, I love that because it's about exploring the potential. And I always say to people, don't set your your bar too high because there's a lot of accounts out there that they say, you know join us and we're going to jump out of a plane or you can lose a stone in weight if you get, you know, and, and it's not realistic. It really isn't realistic. But what is realistic is that you get up in the morning and you say, today I will not drink alcohol, right? And you put your head on the pillow that night and you haven't drank. But you might have had a bit of cheesecake or you might have had a couple of Diet Cokes or you might have had a duvet day where you've laid there all day sulking it doesn't matter it doesn't doesn't matter matter. as long as you don't drink and you get up the next day and the other thing what you said which is true it's be realistic is life right so people might look on instagram and see sober people it's like oh look at them you know bully for you kind of thing i have Mm. some terrible days yeah and i know you do as well um and that's life that is life right but i always say how bad would that day be if you'd have had a skinful the night before? Yeah. You yeah. know, you know me, right? I, I came back off a holiday, right, and had the most horrendous fuel bill, right? And I thought, okay, well, at least I've had holiday because that would have landed on the mat anyway. So how would I have felt like about that without holiday and I've worked for four years without a break? I always try and reframe it. And to be honest... <laughs> I think when I was drinking, I was quite negative because Mm. I hated the world. I was angry at the world. I was angry at people, but really it was, I was angry at myself because I didn't like who I'd become and I didn't know how to get out of it. And that's an interesting point as well, because we've talked about this and I know you hate this word. You hate, you know what I'm going to say. Yeah. It's the, it's the word journey um Mm. and it because this is a journey like the whole sobriety path is a journey and it's a journey of rediscovery because when you stop drinking you rediscover yourself i did the first thing that i rediscovered is that i actually i i discovered again my self-worth and my integrity and i will not trade that for anyone now and and that to me is is what holds my sobriety so strong because i regained that and i I lost that. But throughout the whole time, you are going, like you said, through periods of growth and change because you aren't able to, there's nowhere to hide anymore. (laughs) There's nowhere to run and there's nowhere to, you know, and that is one downside, I guess, for for us in sobriety is we don't have an off switch anymore. There is no blackout blind that you can just pull and go, I'm escaping. In the same way that alcohol can give you that off switch, But what that means is that you learn so much about yourself and some of that is brilliant and some of it is painful, but I don't think I've, I think I've grown. I know I've grown. 
more in the last two years than I did in the previous 10 years easily. And, and you're probably the same. Well, I mean, you say about rediscovered yourself. I discovered myself because I didn't know who I was because I was drinking yeah. from a child. Yeah. So I went through my entire life blacking my emotions out. So mm. again, this is not to scare people off, but when I stopped I'm drinking, doing a good job of that, I fear. <laughs> well, no, where, where you know, it's fact. It's being yeah. honest, and that's what's important about this. You know, we're not. Um, flowering it up to say, do you know what? Everything is wonderful. It, it's like you have to deal with it. But I, how I dealt with it was as in layers. I thought, do you know what? I can't handle all this at once. So I put it in perspective and I thought, right, the deeper stuff, I need to park that. And it was more about my daily routine, how I was going to get through the day without drinking, right? That was the first stage. And then come the emotional sobriety was dealing with my feelings. So um, I was fortunate enough to have a brilliant therapist I worked with over the years and I contacted him and he, he's helped me ever since, you know, dig down a little bit deeper. Um, there's a lot of support out there, yeah, there is. like that. There and, is. and, you know, even in confiding in your really best friend, you know, joining like we, we've I've got a private Facebook group, group now. But we had one. And, you know, having a safe space to talk about your feelings is really important. Um, and not all doing it all at tools. once. No, not no, doing it you, all at once you, because you you have that analogy about the suitcase, yeah, in the, in the attic or the loft, and and you know actually when you first begin on the journey, the suitcase really you can just leave to the back of the the loft. Mm. You don't mm. need to touch it because actually what you're doing is is so emotional and so so difficult, and slowly over time you get closer to that suitcase, you kind of drag it towards the loft hatch and, and maybe then start to, to look Sit in it. through it, yeah. Yeah, but but that's slowly. And I didn't I didn't even really talk to my husband about my sobriety and what all my drinking, actually, until probably about three months in. And even then, it came in dribs and drabs and trickles, a conversation here over dinner, a little bit there, and he'd reveal a bit and I'd reveal a bit. So you don't have to go and solve everything in one go. I think the first few months is the practicals, isn't it? It's like learning to drive, right? You get in the seat on the first day and you don't know what you're doing and you've got the driving instructor saying, right, okay, look in the mirrors, check this, put your belt on, put your foot on the clutch or whatever you're driving, right? And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, I don't know how to do it all, right? And then three years later you're doing donuts around the the car park. It's like... Part of it is the six months or so of learning how to deal with cravings, triggers, social events, birthdays, big birthdays, you know, all these things. The weather changing, you know, there's a, yes. a trigger. Um, yes. In the winter, sitting by a fire in a pub to spring, summer, beer, gardens, barbecues. Right? It's dealing with all of that, right? And once you've got your sort of head around that, you can then open that suitcase up and think, right, there's a few years worth of layers there. I'm going to start at the top and start working backwards. Yeah. And and I think that way it helps you to manage it better. Yeah, definitely. And then and you're finding out who you are, who you who you are as a sober person, who is your identity, because my identity, you know, and that that was another big part actually of my sobriety and the strength that I now feel I've got in my sobriety is, you know, 
it became part of my identity, not in a, you know, holier than now and I'm going to shout it from the rooftops. I didn't do that at all beyond my close circle of friends. And even some of them didn't know for a while. But it, it did become, you know, part of my identity because I was finding out who I was sober and kind of relearning how to do some of the stuff that I did drinking in a totally different way. And there'd be a lot of people listening to this thinking, right, what, what did you do to unwind, to relax, to turn the volume down once you did start drinking? What were your coping strategies after that? I'm still working them out, Dave. Like, honestly, I really am. Um, one thing I would say about, you know, giving up drinking is it doesn't take the noise away. Like, you know, the noise, the noise is sort of still there. And when I say noise, I mean just aggravation, life stress. But it makes it a lot quieter and it makes you are a lot more able to deal with it. And things that used to stress you out just don't in the same way. So where I might have needed to hit the, you know, fuck it button once a day from something really small, like my daughter having a meltdown, well, kids have meltdowns all the time. Now I feel like I need to hit the fuck it button maybe once every few months maybe long you know maybe twice a year like the real and so it it just makes life easier to handle it makes you calmer so yes it doesn't doesn't switch it off but it means you need to switch off less yeah i i really hear that i mean i'm a lot calmer now my nervous system is just ticking along quite nicely so when i've got that horrendous fuel bore in it's like oh my god but i kind of got my head around it quite quickly yet if i was drinking the first thing i would have done was there's an excuse to have a drink so it's that old thing isn't it good day bad day any day yeah yeah and you and you find you find your ways you find you know for me running is a big one yeah Um, there's a lot of people there's a there's whole groups on facebook alcohol free runners you know there's a lot of people who do use things like running because for me i'm rubbish at meditation it is something that i need to you know, yeah. the whole mindfulness, I'm terrible. But but running enables that for me. And you find you find mechanisms. But as I said, you you're looking after you you're no longer operating from this like peer this this below par. You know, I used to wake up in the morning, Dave, go into the shower, and I'd literally have to like give myself a pep talk about how I was going to get through my day, because I would feel so dreadful, mostly mentally, but physically. Of course, you're not sleeping as well, you know, and I would be having to talk myself into the day. Mm. And now I wake up and I just get on with my day. You know, I love that feeling and that feeling of just waking up and feeling normal and having had a really bloody brilliant night's sleep is just amazing. Yeah, I quite often um, talk about bandwidth, right? So what that told me there was the struggle you had with all your inner dialogue going on, like the self-loathing, the the why have I done it again, the how am I going to get through the day and what am I going to say to that person I sent a dodgy text to or how am I going to be okay in the meeting? All these things, right, are just so loud in your head in the morning, right? But when you take alcohol away, you've already processed them because one – you're not having to deal with all that. But two, you've already thought about the meeting that day yesterday because you've got a clearer bandwidth in your head. And that's one of the biggest things for me that I've really 
really noticed with my life is it's almost like I've gone through my man draw. I don't know if you've ever heard the Michael McIntyre thing about the man draw where it's got men have Nokia 3310s, old car batteries, <laughs> car keys that they don't even know where they belong to. Right. And, and I'll sift it through the man draw and everything's in order. You know, and that's how my life is now. I've even got one of those organisers with all the bills in. I've never had that in my life. You know, I've labelled them electric, council tax. You know, I've never had that. But my life is more organised now because I have more time to process everything. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And yeah, it, it, it just does. It just me. It makes life. It feels like you're operating from a level playing field rather than, you know, down. Now, a lot of people say to me about they worry about their friends, right? So how did this impact with you when you had that conversation with them that actually I'm not drinking anymore? Um, how did it impact with me? Um, I was actually like hugely pleasantly surprised. I was, it was the one thing that I was most scared about. A lot of my female and male relationships were based around drinking. You know, like attracts like. So a lot of my friends love a drink, still do, and are big boozers. And I think I was worried, am I no longer going to be relevant? Am I going to be? And actually, and I have heard stories where friendships fall by the wayside when people get sober and blah, blah, blah. But I think it's testament to the fact that my mates are really good mates, that that just didn't happen. And actually, it was really bloody lovely to know that, they like hanging out with me because of me, not because and and sober gen is is much better than junk gen. Yeah. Okay, I might not be willing now to go and, you know, party until two AM every Friday night. And some of the stuff we do together may have shifted slightly, but I was I did not have an issue in terms of how my friends received it. But it doesn't mean to say that I wasn't petrified. I mean, there was one friend in particular who, you know, we'd been on holidays together drinking. We, you know, drink was a big part of our social activity. And now we do different stuff. We, you know, we still go out for dinner and she'll have some wine and I don't. And we go walking together, we meet for coffees together, and the friendship is just as strong. It's just that is one part. And I think, I think actually maybe there was a recognition amongst definitely some of my friends of just how much it was impacting me. And I don't think any of them would have turned around and said, oh, Jen's got a problem with drinking at all. But I think they could see that my mental health was suffering mm. for whatever reason. And I think they could see the change when I stopped drinking in that my mental health was so much better that it had to be a good thing. And so it, it did, it wasn't an issue for me. Not to say that it wasn't, it wasn't an easy transition, but most of that is in my own head, I think. And I think that is the case when you become sober. A lot of what you think people are going to think is in your own head and not theirs. Yeah. It's a bit like when you dance in it, you, you get on the dance floor and you think everyone's looking at you dancing, but they're not. They're worrying about their own dancing. Yeah, exactly. And actually, yeah. we know, we know the same. We know that the two rules. <laughs> Number one is once everybody at the bar has had their first drink, maybe their second, they do not care what's in your glass yeah. at all. Yeah. And the second rule is the only person that does still care is the person that is probably questioning their own relationship with alcohol. Yeah. You shine a mirror, aren't you? Yeah. 
yeah, once you kind of see that rule in action a few times, you get really used to it and really wise to it. And yeah, and you become more confident. And bugger off, I'm early. Um, and what, yeah, what's true. really interesting <laughs> as well is that generally the people that do have a problem, they kind of calm down and you find they're the ones that ask you how you do it. Yeah. Have you found that? Um, a little bit, a little bit. I posted on Facebook. I'd never come out. Is that the way to say it? I don't know. Um, before about my sobriety publicly um, beyond close friends. But I posted it on my two-year soberversary. Is that what we call it? Think. And it wasn't a particularly like, you know, groundbreaking post, but it just sort of said that I'd not been drinking for two years and, you know, um, and I had an overwhelming number of posts and comments and great feedback. And off the back of that, a few people did contact me privately to say, how did you do it? And me too. And, and so I have been, you know, talking with, with people because Operating as an iceberg when it comes to sobriety is really, really bloody hard. And I think part of success is is in finding your kind of community of people that get it. Um, and it's such a lovely community, isn't it? Like it is a lovely community because there's a connection. We are all connected by that. You know, I think people that drink too much are bloody amazing people. Like yeah. we are, we're, we're kind of like the reformed rebels, like the most interesting people that I meet are normally people that have, you know, got some form or had some form of issue with drugs or alcohol because they, you know, they, they operate at those extremes. And so actually the sober community is full of bloody, amazing, resilient, awesome, creative, inspiring individuals. And, and so actually it's a much less scary place than you think. If you think about the stereotypical, you know, AA meeting or, or whatever comes to mind when you think about, you know, giving up alcohol. And that's why I wanted to come on here. Yeah. They're, they're, they're two extremes. Yeah. Like the, like, like the, um, person on the bench with a brown bag, you know, and, and, you know, I'm a gray area drinking coach and there is a huge space in between of people like yourself that aren't drinking every single day, but, the relationship with alcohol is a problem and um, a lot of grey area drinkers, if you say, well, just give up, they go, oh, I can't do that. You know, like, yeah. like there's a huge space and that's why it's opened Massive. up. And that's yeah. why I wanted to come on here because you've asked me before, probably asked me a year ago, I think, and I kind of sort of shied away from it a bit because it felt quite exposing. It felt, you know, a little bit nerve wracking. You kind of think, and and then I thought, well, why? Because actually, there are, you know, you you look behind the school gates of, you know, the parents at school. There there must be many, 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 many people that are like me. That exactly like you say, they exist in this middle between the one end, which is kind of my husband that really can take or leave it mm, and just mm. doesn't, you know, bother with it Even at all. Think about it, really. But, yeah. To the, to no to the other end. Well, thinks about how he can avoid it quite a lot um, when he's out. But the other end of the spectrum, which is you know the person that's physically dependent on alcohol and in serious trouble, like serious trouble. And then in between, like you said, there's just grey area, and I love that term, grey area drinking, because it kind of it busts down the barriers a bit. It yeah. busts down the barriers between you must be an alcoholic, otherwise you you wouldn't be seeking help when really yeah. the question is, is alcohol impacting your life? Yeah. Yes or no? 
yeah. in a negative way. And if it's if the answer is yes, then do, you have to do something about it. And that was me, and I tried and I couldn't. And that's when it got scary because you then realise that it's an addictive drug. Yeah, and, <laughs> it, know, and it's it literally is. everywhere you look. Yeah, absolutely everywhere. So, also your family must have noticed a difference and we won't say names for confidentiality, but I believe your daughter's 10. Is she now? Yes. Yeah. So she was eight coming up to eight, I suppose mm-hmm. when yep, she you was. stopped. So she was probably old enough to see mummy with the glass of wine, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. wandering around and bedtime. And, and does she ever say anything to you? No, it's interesting because actually she's coming up to nine. So she would, yeah, she would have been coming up to eight. You're right. And um, my youngest, he he was two years, he's two years younger than that. And we had a conversation the other day. I can't remember how it started, but he, something came up and um, about when I used to drink or something. And he, he said, used to drink, used to drink alcohol. Like he genuinely didn't, can't remember me drinking, which to me is lovely. Um, my daughter, she definitely can. Now, I don't think it's it, it's a, it's an actual memory that she can place, but there is something there that, um, and I see this. So I work in the wedding industry, and you see you see this with kids when people are drunk at weddings. And what you see is kids actually are quite fearful of drunk adults, including their own parents. You see it in their eyes all the time because that they they don't know and they can't coin what's going on, but they know that something's not quite right. They know that mummy and daddy aren't quite themselves and that takes away their feeling of safety and security. Even if it's on a small level, it does. And you can see it in their eyes. They're looking for that kind of reassurance. She has never um, actually articulated that uh, or said anything about my drinking but there have been a couple of occasions where I've had like a non-alcoholic fizzy something in a champagne flute because it's been a celebration and I hate that feeling of missing out because you're not drinking when you can just have a non-alcoholic whatever and she has come down the stairs and seen the glass on the table and she's kind of gone what are you doing and I wouldn't say that is a desperate panic, but there's a definite edge to the voice. Yeah. And then I'll say, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's a grape juice, non-alcoholic, fizzy thing. You can try some if you like. And then you see the kind of relaxing of the shoulders and you see. So there was definitely something there, I think, where she associated mummy drinking with, I, I don't like that. I don't like it. And I, I you know, I didn't do anything that I know that was bad when I was drinking around my kids. You know, it wasn't anything like that. But I think it takes away their feeling of safety. I also think as well, um, she's now experienced two years plus of you being present. Yeah. And we're so much closer. And it could be as simple as that. Yeah. We're so because much Because you're closer. always there for her. You're emotionally available for her all the time. And we know what it's like, even when we have one drink, two drinks, we start to slip away, don't we? We start to get a little bit irritable because we go into our own little space of, right, I'm drinking now. Now leave me alone because I've been working all day. I've looked after yeah, you. Yeah. Done, and this now is well, this time. is my time. And it could be like six o'clock. Or how many times at the party day where we've been at, you know, dinner parties or whatever, we've taken the kids and 
actually had a prime example of this. Um, we went to a birthday party about a month ago and we were away from home and we were staying in the pub that had rooms where the party was. And it was a family do. And my son was there. My daughter wasn't because she was away. And, you know, the food just did not get served until really late. I mean, it was like nine o'clock at night. And that's really late for a, a seven-year-old. And he just got to the point where he just absolutely whacked and just needed to go to bed. But it was, you know, I the food had just been served. Now, if I had been drinking, I would have pushed that, pushed him, really. I mean, ultimately, call a spade a spade. I'd have pushed his priorities aside for my own. And we would have tried, you know, godding him through, you know, to 11 o'clock or midnight or whatever. As it was, I could see, I could see what was happening. I finished my meal. I waited until it was, you know, I, I had time with people and then I just took him to bed and yeah. I took him to bed and we laid there and watched a bit of TV together. And I, I put him first because I could do that. But so many times I think you, yeah, you're exactly right. That kind of you're getting in my way. This is my time. Yeah. And, and that does impact. And so since then, particularly with my daughter, we're so, we're so close. And I've got that, you know, I've got that respect in myself that, you know, at least I don't ever have to kind of doubt my decisions. At least I don't ever have to kind of, I don't have that guilt of thinking, did I do that or did I act that way because I was drunk? You know, I'm, I'm fully present. I'm making the conscious decisions. And, you know, as has happened when I've had to take my youngest to hospital once a few months ago, um, to A&E at 10 o'clock at night, I, I can do that. I yeah. can do that. I can drive there. I can be present. And as a mum, that means the world to me. I hear you. Finally, mm. for anyone listening to this who can really relate to all you're saying, what advice would you give? I would say if you're sat here and what any of what we're talking about resonates with you, I would just say, listen to your soul. Listen to what your soul is saying to you and seek help because there is loads of help out there. Yeah, that's great. And there is now. There's so much help available. Groups, coaches, you know, if AA works for you, there's that. There's online stuff. Uh, And, you know, don't think because you've listened to all the podcasts, read all the quicklit, there's so many other things out there. You know, I read recently Dopamine Nation, which helps you understand, you know, the the link between ADHD and the dopamine hit that you constantly seek. Funny enough, I was talking to one of my best friends about this the other day. That's strange. But yeah, but there is, there is so much help. There is so, but it's listening to your soul because I think the thing with the booze brain is it's really clever and it's really manipulative. And especially in a society where we are completely saturated by alcohol, yeah. it's really easy to dismiss that nagging voice. Yeah. And I think that nagging voice comes from the soul and it comes from your heart. And if you're hearing it, then you need to listen to it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jenna, thank you so much for joining me today. Congratulations thank on your you. two plus years of sobriety. And uh, I hope to see you soon. Take it easy. Bye. Bye-bye. I really hope you enjoyed the show today. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. 
For further support, you can buy my book, One for the Road, on Amazon, and you can also follow me on Instagram, at Sober Dave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. Until then, thanks for listening, and have a great week.